G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. Good to be with you on the podcast again. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you. Absolutely. And good to be with you for today's topic, which is one that's been based off one of the more popular podcasts that we've done, Dad. So do you want to just give us a bit of a brief rundown on today's episode, which we've called Depersonalization in Panic Attacks? Okay. Now, the thing is, depersonalization is what we call a dissociative symptom. And dissociative symptoms occur where you experience yourself in a different way. You feel a bit detached from your usual sense of self. For example, you might feel like your body does not belong to you, which is a form of dissociation. You can also have forgetfulness or amnesia. You can also have feelings of what we call derealization, feeling as though the world isn't real. And then you can get certain kind of distortions in your sense of identity. For example, feeling like you're acting so differently in one situation compared to another, it's as though you're a different person and that can lead on to conditions like dissociative identity disorder. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in our next podcast episode when we talk about depersonalization that occurs more generally. But today we're talking more about depersonalization that occurs during panic attacks because it's something that's quite under-recognised. And so, yeah, so as you say, talking about dissociation in panic attacks, and look, Dad, we've, the keen listeners out there will realise that we've given up the alliteration for today's episode after 40, I think 43 episodes now. So we've given that one up just for today's episode. I'm sure we'll come back to it. But do you want to just give us a bit of a, an insight into why we're talking about this today? Because we thought that it was something that look, we didn't want to trivialise it with a name that had a bit of alliteration, but maybe wasn't going to be as specific to what we wanted talk about because there is a lot in today's topic isn't there there is and it's quite a specific clinical topic and it's under recognized because many people will know something about panic attacks but will often associate panic attacks with say your heart beating fast feeling breathless maybe feeling hot shaking and trembling maybe feeling some nausea something like that so these other panic symptoms are more commonly recognized but often depersonalization and derealization don't get described as much yet these are really disconcerting feelings like people can feel as though their body's not real or it doesn't belong to them or people can feel as though the world around them isn't real and these reactions are actually a little bit more common than people realize so for example if about 10 percent of people would have a panic attack in any particular year We know from some studies that about half the people having a panic attack will have some feeling of depersonalisation or derealisation, feeling a bit detached from themselves or the world around them. But it's an odd kind of feeling and sometimes can lead people to feel not just that they're losing a sense of control, but people can even feel like they're losing their mind because it can be such a strange feeling as we'll describe some examples later on. So part of what we're looking to do is to bring it to people's attention that this is a more common reaction than people might realise, that it's not dangerous, it doesn't mean you're losing your mind, it's not associated with psychosis. And when people recognise that and recognise that it quite often occurs with panic attacks, then hopefully that will take some of the angst or distress out of it as people recognise that and pick up on some of our tips of how to manage with it. 
And we've spoken about dissociation before on the podcast in the Dealing with Dissociation episode. And one of the things that was interesting about that episode, isn't it, Dad, is having spoken to a couple of people who got in touch, you then, uh, I guess, realised that they were more dealing with panic attacks and the depersonalization associated with panic attacks than dissociation itself. So that's where, yeah, it'll be good to differentiate the two today. Yes, and so what people were highlighting when they got in touch because they'd read our earlier clinical handout of dealing with dissociative symptoms and they got in touch with that because they were wanting help with dissociation. But in fact, it was very much the sense of depersonalisation and derealisation that happened with panic attacks. And so they felt in some ways that they were losing their mind because they lost that usual sense of being connected with their body and the world around them not realising that that's what can happen when people have panic attacks. Well, it is something that I imagine without experiencing something like that and knowing exactly what it is, it could be quite scary, I imagine, certainly strange in many ways as well. But I wonder then, are there multiple types of depersonalisation? So we talk about the idea of feeling outside your body, but I suppose that in some ways that it's a little bit ambiguous in terms of not uh, not having a feeling of being within our own skin. Is it to do with perception? Is it to do with just a, a more general uneasy feeling? I wonder if you could help to describe it a little bit further in terms of what actually is depersonalisation. Okay, well, there are four main different types of depersonalisation which involve feeling detached from your body in some way, feeling detached from your feelings, so kind of numbed, then feeling detached from your memory or otherwise feeling detached from the world or derealization. So first of all, if we look at feeling detached from your body, that's generally some kind of feeling as though your body doesn't belong to you. You might even have the experience of kind of standing outside your body, perhaps even looking on as though you're viewing another person. It can even be looking in a mirror and feeling that you don't relate to the image looking back to you. It also is a kind of emotional numbing, so like a sense of emotional detachment. It also can involve some kind of distortions in memory. So, for example, it can be particularly difficult to recall certain kind of events or feel as though those memories don't belong to you but to someone else. Or it might even be a time distortion, like there's a recent memory but it feels as though it was from longer ago. But it tends to be particularly kind of forgetfulness. And then it can be with that link with derealization and so feeling detached from your circumstances it might feel as though you're looking at the world through a fog or it might even be feeling almost literally like the world around you isn't real can feel so detached from it and that can be an especially uncomfortable feeling and one of the symptoms of panic attacks we'll go through some of the 13 symptoms later on but a combined symptom is either depersonalization that change in your sense of your connection with your body, feeling detached from your body and or feeling detached from the world around you as though the world isn't real. Well, it's an interesting one and it's one that, as I said before, I imagine without necessarily experiencing something as acutely as as what you're explaining, it'd be hard to maybe get a sense of because I suppose if there's anything that I relate to out of that, I suppose maybe sometimes you find yourself driving on a long highway and you can forget that you've driven, for example, the last couple of kilometres, you may not have necessarily taken it in. But what I'm picking up is that it's maybe a more intense feeling than that and it's maybe something akin to potentially even finding yourself in a car that you maybe don't even remember getting into at all rather than don't necessarily remember the previous couple of kilometres. 
Yes. Now, and actually what you're referring to is quite a common dissociative symptom, like a normal example of dissociation, which is what we call highway hypnosis. You're driving along and you might think, oh, I don't remember driving through those red lights. But our brain is still operating in a way to see that we break in time and observe the traffic rules, but it's just happening at a more mechanical behavioural level, if you like. Look, funnily enough, when I was thinking about what kind of experiences I might have had that were the closest to dissociation, or depersonalization. And look, this might sound pretty weird, this example, but I thought of times in the past when I had dreams that I needed to go to the toilet, but for some reason couldn't go, like there was no urinal nearby or whatever. And sometimes I would wake up some minutes later and realize I needed to go to the toilet. And so it was like this strange thing of being in a dream and feeling like I was, say, for whatever reason, a urinal wasn't available or for whatever reason, I couldn't use the urinal. And then later on, I realised, oh, that's because I was asleep and I knew I kind of needed to get up to go to the toilet. But there had been other situations where I would have been, for example, standing at a urinal and just had a brief fleeting feeling, is this real or is this like in a dream? Almost like remembering something like that same kind of experience of being in a dream, just a very fleeting feeling like that. So look, maybe that's a weird example, but I think sometimes if we do have a dream and then later on we can remember that dream and then if in everyday life we're in a situation a bit like the dream or just say a feeling like deja vu, I think that can be a little bit of that quality, like did this happen before or did I just remember this? It can feel like your mind's playing tricks on you a little bit. And I suppose the other thing with dreams as well is that quite often you can be woken up so abruptly that for those first few seconds, you can almost wonder, am I still in the dream here? Or, you know, what is reality in that sense? So that's where I wonder if if that's something that's a little bit more relatable that way. Uh, Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, there's something that we call in hypnosis, we call it hypnagogic states. And that's the state of mind just after waking up or maybe just before going to sleep. It's almost like that transition period between wakefulness and being asleep. So yeah, I think that's a good example. And it's an interesting one as well because hearing you describe that, one of the things that came to mind to me actually one time was when I had issues with, I think it was my middle ear one time and basically lost all sense of balance. And it was one of those things that you kind of take for granted a little bit in terms of the mechanisms that we have kind of working for us all the time in terms of being able to keep us balanced. But it was only when they were taken away that I suppose I had a real sense of exactly what those were. So I wonder if it's almost maybe even a a similar thing in terms of it might only be something that we really get a sense of when it is taken away. Yes, and now you're saying that too. I can remember a time at uni when a friend of mine felt really unsettled and you could see that she was standing there looking fairly unsteady and she said, look, I just felt as though the whole floor tilted, like I was losing my balance and it was like the floor of this building tilted. And clearly it was a very disconcerting feeling to her at the time. And we can understand part of the reason why people don't talk about these things as much because it feels weird. And people might feel as though they're losing their mind in some way. And so people might feel there's a bit of stigma about it or feel a bit of fear about it. That's part of the reason why we're talking about this because if 5% of people in a year are going to experience depersonalisation in the context of panic attack, and you can experience depersonalisation in other situations as well, like with depression or trauma reactions or dissociative disorders that we'll talk about a little bit more next week, then 
they're going to be more than 5% of people experiencing depersonalisation in any one year and yet it'll be quite an internal experience and difficult to describe because by definition it's weird. You feel detached from yourself, your body or your usual reality. Well, I wonder then why it is under-recognised because, for example, talking about 5% of people who deal with panic attacks... That's a significant amount of the population in terms of if you're looking for whether or not this is on the radar at all. So I wonder why it is something that isn't recognised more. Look, I think partly because when we talk about mental health difficulties, we so often talk about the very prevalent difficulties with, say, anxiety and depression. We might talk about trauma reactions or anger reactions, but certainly anxiety and depression we'll often talk about And I think we'll tend to talk about things that more obviously relate to our feelings of tension in our body or feeling very low and sad. And so I think that these other kind of prevalent reactions will tend to capture our attention. But look, to tell you the truth, I think another reason for this is you can't treat depersonalisation or dissociative symptoms so well with drugs. And I think that a whole lot of our research, probably 90% of mental health research, more than that, will be funded by drug companies. So we'll tend to focus on things like anxiety and depression, but depersonalisation is more to do with how we direct our attention and how we manage our feelings at a psychological level. And we'll talk about the strategies for addressing it later on. It's not like you can give medication for it. So I think it gets less recognition that way as well. Well, that's really interesting. And Look, it's something that's come up a little bit before. I think that makes a lot of sense. But what I wonder there is, is it something that traditionally, in terms of maybe hearing someone's experience with these sorts of symptoms, is it something that's traditionally been ignored or is it likely to be conflated with other symptoms? In terms of, is it something that people almost invalidate the entire experience within itself and go, oh, you know, that must be, whether it be psychosis or, or something like that? Yeah. Are they likely to think of it as something else or whether they just dismiss the entire experience at all? Well, I think partly, if we look at, say, dissociative disorders more generally and depersonalisation is a dissociative type symptom, one thing is it's quite internal and it's weird, so people won't talk about it as much. But also, I think often dissociative experiences relate a little bit more to hypnotic kind of mechanisms, so people being in like a trance state. And so people are going to relate more or understand more about those symptoms if they have an interest or background in hypnosis, which might not be as frequent as people's understanding about anxiety and depression, for example. I think also it is maybe swamped by other symptoms that are more obvious, like the agitation or the anxiety or depression. But I think also when things are more complicated to understand, they tend to be dismissed a little bit more. And that's where we've talked about before with dissociative disorders as well. They used to say 30 years ago, a lot of people 30 years ago said they just don't exist. And yet many of us who specialised in that area felt that in a way we were becoming unpopular in our particular work settings and hospital settings because people thought that if we talked about then multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder that it didn't exist. But now we know we have all sorts of evidence for how people can experience such alterations of their sense of self that sometimes they feel really as if they're one person rather than another and they can have, for example, a 100 separate identities in themselves and switching between them. And so because it's hard to understand and it doesn't fit with a usual medical model and because it's often private, because it seems weird and people fear that they're losing their mind, it's the weirder kind of reactions that can't be explained so much by biochemical imbalances and treated with medication. 
they're the ones that tend to be under-recognised and under-emphasised. Well, as you say, I imagine it would also be something that could be even hard to communicate to someone who hasn't experienced those sorts of feelings. But I wonder, as someone who, look, I must admit, don't necessarily relate to many kind of symptoms of depersonalisation. So it can be a little bit hard to, I suppose, calibrate my experiential kind of reality with with some of these things so i wonder if you could even help us do that a little bit whether there's i wonder any explanations that you've maybe even been given in the past that you thought were quite elegant yes look a couple of case examples where people actually in more recent times explained things so well that i noted down the way that they expressed it and um so really good examples of explaining what it's like subjectively but Keep in mind that when people experience depersonalisation with panic attacks, they're often going to feel close to panic, a bit agitated. They'll notice that their heart beats fast. It tends to go with feelings of agitation and also hypervigilance. When people have panic attacks and depersonalisation, they're often looking out for what feels weird and what kind of feels wrong. But as one person described, one young person described, it's not just the panic attack of like agitation and shortness of breath and heart beating fast, but she said, beyond that, it feels like I'm not actually here, like I'm watching, like how you feel in a dream. I'm on autopilot. I can't concentrate on anything in particular, and afterwards I can't remember what happened. I think that's so descriptive. And that notion of being on autopilot, I think, is a common way that people describe some of that feeling of depersonalisation. And then there was a lady that I had contact with in her 30s, and she described how over a period of time, having had a number of panic attacks, or actually at first she didn't talk about it in terms of panic attacks. First she said that she thought she was losing her mind, it was to do with dissociation, but later on we realised she had the agitation and the shortness of breath and the other symptoms that went with it. But Particularly what she was concerned about is this sense of being disconnected from herself and her family members. So the way that she put it is that she felt at times, and she understood the term dissociation, she said that she felt dissociated from herself and her family members to the point where I don't know the old me. Like with these reactions, I get the obsessive idea that I don't exist, that my beloved ones are not real. They don't exist. So she described this estrangement from herself and other people and then described this fear of losing connection with reality. So there's that very clear depersonalisation and derealisation that went with that, that with this lady in particular, she had some concerns about becoming psychotic. And there was nothing psychotic or schizophrenic about her. When people develop something like schizophrenia, typically they've had quite some time, often years of difficulty motivating themselves, difficulty managing their emotions, difficulty connecting with people socially, difficulty working maybe, problems with concentration. These are enduring kind of problems. And people might also have some quite strange ideas, which we would call delusions about having some super special powers or people maybe trying to poison them, so some kind of paranoid thoughts, often like quite frankly bizarre thoughts that people can have, which are basically absent in what we're talking about with depersonalisation and panic attacks. So part of it is helping people recognise the difference between agitation 
dissociative symptoms like depersonalization and psychosis where there are these more general difficulties that go with it in people's ongoing cognitive and emotional functioning whereas these examples i just gave people were functioning quite well in many ways relating to friends relating to family members able to work or study that kind of thing i suppose what i wonder then is with that notion of it being connected to anxiety is it then something that young people are likely to experience more because young people are likely to experience anxiety more Well, look, I think it certainly tends to start early. And yes, I think it would be more prevalent in young people in that if we look at something like depersonalisation disorder, meaning where depersonalisation experiences, rather than being just fleeting and brief and mainly with panic like we're talking about today, if they become more habitual and repeated over a period of time, that tends to be more common in women than men, about twice as much female to male, but also with age, as you're mentioning, It's especially common in people aged between about 15 and 30 years. So I suppose that when people maybe don't understand quite so much about how their own mind and body reacts with anxiety and where these depersonalisation feelings have come up early on and not understood it so much, then that will tend to happen. Maybe over quite a period of time, people are more likely to learn that these reactions aren't so dangerous. They might learn other ways of dealing with panic so it happens a little bit less often. Or maybe people develop different strategies that help ease the panic attacks. But yes, it does tend to occur earlier. And when people do develop depersonalisation experiences, it tends to be by teenage years. Well, that's interesting in terms of it being more likely to develop earlier in life. And what I wonder then, is it something that is likely to be linked to particular personality traits, which, for example, are likely to be established by around the age of 13, 14 sort of thing? Or is it more situational, like I suppose trauma is in terms of something that could potentially happen a little way further down the line? Well, we know that people are more prone to depersonalisation if they have experienced past trauma because it is a dissociative symptom, which is a kind of way of looking to detach from one's painful experience. But also, if there's anything that I've noticed, I think people are more prone to depersonalisation if they have extra concerns about being in control. And perfectionism could be one example of that, because people might be more exacting in their expectations of themselves and how much in control they are. But to look at how that notion of concerns about control or personality aspects that relate to that, that makes more sense when we think of three main things that are happening when people are experiencing depersonalisation, say with panic attacks. One, they're agitated, so any personality characteristics that lead people to feel more anxiety or agitation will be relevant. They tend to be more vigilant, so if people are concerned about control and having to be on top of things, people are going to notice it more there. But also what happens with depersonalisation is there's a kind of inhibition effect. When people are experiencing depersonalisation with panic attacks, there's the agitation and vigilance, but also a part of people's frontal lobes are switched on that tend to inhibit emotion, that tend to suppress emotion. So there's this effect happening, maybe even partly an unconscious effect, where people are trying to block out painful emotion. And so that would relate to characteristics associated with avoidance. So when people experience, for example, social anxiety and avoidance or any other kind of strategies of tending to kind of numb painful feelings, people be more prone to depersonalisation then. So it's a combination 
of the agitation as well as trying to suppress or numb that agitation, yet throughout being very self-conscious through the whole process. Well, what I wonder then is, as you describe that there, I wonder if it relates a little bit to the idea of fight or flight. Because to me, especially dealing with things like hypervigilance and agitation, to me that reminds me of, of circumstances in which the limbic system, the fight or flight system, would be activated. And even the way that you mentioned before that it's something that is potentially with panic attacks a little bit more likely to occur in women, I even wonder if, for example, that idea of a lack of control in men, that could potentially manifest a little bit differently in terms of whether it be anger reactions or other reactions to do with a lack of control otherwise. But is it something that is almost related to that? I wonder if it's almost like a feeling of flight without necessarily running away, if that makes sense. So it's, it's almost like you are leaving your general sense of self but you're not necessarily leaving your geographic location if that makes sense yes i think that's pretty accurate i think that's a lot of what's happening so there is that fight or flight reaction that's triggered with panic by definition we've got a fight or flight reaction that's related to our evolutionary survival systems but one way of fleeing is to try and not be in your body or not be in your mind, not feel what you're feeling at the time. So that avoidance, all forms of avoidance related to anxiety in a sense are a kind of subtle flight like you're suggesting. And so how then do we manage with these symptoms? Because as we've been talking about, I imagine it can be something that can be quite stressful and strange and and to not necessarily feel like you're really in control of things as we've been talking about. I almost wonder if it's like, I almost use the analogy of being on a a pontoon in rough seas in terms of if you were to try and get stability whilst on a pontoon in rough seas, well, you wouldn't even have a sense of what a, you know, stable platform in that situation is. So I wonder if it's a little bit like that in terms of being incredibly difficult to regather that stability. Yes, well, look, I think that's an important kind of thing. People are going to feel that sense of losing control, that detachment from themselves, the world around. That is going to be a destabilising feeling. But like all other panic symptoms, the key is to recognise that it's not dangerous. It might feel really disconcerting, it might feel weird, it might be very uncomfortable, there might be distress that goes with it, but it's not dangerous. And so that's like all the panic symptoms. So sometimes with panic People have, for example, their heart beating fast and people be most concerned about having a heart attack and dying. They think there's a physical threat. When there's not, it's not dangerous. Their heart will settle, they'll be fine, usually within 10 minutes. The other thing that can happen with panic is people can think, oh, look, I might faint or react in an uncontrolled way and make an idiot of myself. And again, that might be pretty uncomfortable or whatever, but basically it's not dangerous and people tend not to do these uncontrolled things that they fear. But the thing with depersonalisation and derealisation, if people fear that they might lose their mind, well, that's not dangerous either. It's not going to happen. Basically, it will pass just as the other reactions will pass. So the heart beating fast will pass. Feeling hot and sweaty will pass. The shortness of breath, lightheadedness, muscle tension, nausea, these other kind of panic symptoms that people can have, this feeling of losing control, maybe even a fear of dying, these symptoms will pass. The key thing is recognising with panic attacks that panic 
feelings and panic attacks are not dangerous. They're part of that fight-flight survival system. They will pass as the person comes to recognise in time the danger is over. Generally, they'll pass within about 10 minutes. And it does help to appreciate some of the things that are happening that contribute to the panic. Now, we can understand our muscles tightening up, for example, when we're getting prepared to fight or flee. We can understand that. But we can also learn a little bit more about how the feelings of unreality might come up with panic attacks when we understand that some of the symptoms are caused by a reduction of oxygen to the brain. So a number of panic symptoms, dizziness, lightheadedness, breathlessness and your heart beating fast are all associated with getting less oxygen to the brain. Because what happens, it's a little bit technical, but when people are in panic, the haemoglobin in your blood can get more sticky for oxygen. It kind of holds on to the oxygen more rather than releasing as much oxygen when the blood gets to your brain. So that means your brain's getting less oxygen. And that can lead more directly to the feelings of dizziness, lightheadedness, breathlessness and the feelings of unreality. So if people deliberately started panting (laughs) like that hyperventilating for about a minute, a number of people might feel that they're starting to get this woolly feeling in their head or foggy kind of feeling and a bit of a woozy kind of feeling. It is like a feeling of unreality or lightheadedness. And so that's partly from the reduction in oxygen in the blood to the brain being released, but also some of the unreality can be from that suppressive inhibiting effect from the frontal lobes trying to switch down or dial down emotion. So you get the lesser oxygen, the dialing down, the suppressing of feelings, those things together, I think, contribute to people feeling that depersonalization, feeling detached from their body, the world around them, not having that usual sense. But it will pass and it'll pass in a similar way to the other panic symptoms. Well, I suppose what comes to mind for me there is that it seems to me that it's related to this notion of panic about panic in some ways, in terms of it's almost like this meta-analysis that we're doing at the time of going, hold on, this is what I'm feeling and I'm I'm out of control and what does that mean? And then uh, you can sort of go on from there. But one thing that comes to mind for me there is, I suppose, just how real it certainly would seem having spoken about what we've spoken about in the last couple of podcast episodes with placebo in terms of if we perceive something to be a certain way, it is likely to be that way. So if we feel ourselves getting real panicky and we're going, oh, I'm out of control and, and I've got no control over what you know my body's doing and the way that I'm feeling, well, that's kind of the way that it is. So I wonder if you do have any suggestions for almost like levering in some of this extra thinking of you know, it will pass, some of these mantras, these positive mantras that we speak about. Yes, and so certainly what you're referring to there, we've talked about before in terms of nocebo effects, haven't we, rather than placebo effects that make you feel better. Nocebo effects can make you feel worse. So I think we talked of an example of where a number of people, 100 people one time thought they'd been poisoned by poison gas. I think it was in Afghanistan. And then they were admitted to hospital with showing signs that seemed like poisoning, but within 24 hours they all recovered because it was more their imagination that they'd been poisoned. Or people can actually feel paralysed and believe that they really can't walk when there's not any particular physical reason for that. So the power of our mind is very impactful. And just like you're saying, panic attacks themselves are not dangerous. The problem generally is panic about the panic. 
And that is when people really tend to lose their focus and attention and feel most distressed and get caught up in it like a vicious cycle. So to reverse that, like you're suggesting, it does tie in with the idea of recognising it's not dangerous. So we might even remind ourselves, I'll be okay. Breathe slowly. If people can breathe slowly, they'll tend to counter the hyperventilation that can lead paradoxically, to that reduction in oxygen to the brain. The blood gets more sticky, the haemoglobin, less oxygen to the brain. If people can breathe slowly, that tends to reverse some of the dizziness as well as maybe feelings of unreality. But also if people can say to themselves some kind of mantra like, I'll be okay, let it pass. Then if in addition with the depersonalization, if people use what we call grounding techniques, grounding techniques mean Be attuned to your surroundings. Look to be connected to your surroundings. Breathing slowly might help whilst you, for example, look at familiar objects around you. You might think, okay, I see a table over there. It's brown. It's a rectangular shape. There I can see a white wall. There I can see a chair with a blue cushion. You can describe what's around you. We call that a grounding technique. So even though you feel a little bit kind of weird, The essence is to manage with your discomfort within your own skin. Manage with the feelings within your own skin, even if it's uncomfortable, focusing on the environment around you. So that's like the opposite of dissociation. That's looking to keep yourself a bit connected. Even if you feel weird inside, those grounding techniques will help. So what you're doing is you're allowing the agitation, even some of the panic symptoms to be there, like your heart beating fast, feeling a bit short of breath, feeling a little bit hot, but preferably slowing your breathing, telling yourself you'll be okay, and then your body will tend to gradually settle, your mind will tend to gradually settle, and then you notice when that's passed. When that settles, it's worth telling yourself, okay, that was really uncomfortable, but I've got through that. I'm okay. And it's like reminding yourself of that, reminding yourself that yet again, it showed that it wasn't dangerous, it did pass. So the thing is, dealing with it like usual panic attacks, plus that extra emphasis on looking to stay grounded. And rather than then getting caught up with the agitation or vigilance, you're focusing more on things around you, slowing your breathing, that will tend to help. And then recognising you can deal with that discomfort within your own skin, then it passes. It's not dangerous. That's really interesting, particularly talking about those grounding techniques because what comes to mind for me there is I remember one time when I was at university and I was with a guy who sort of later found out he had quite a tough life and I was with him at a time and yeah, basically he became quite overwhelmed in this situation that we're in and I remember him doing this thing where he sat there tapping his temples And so he'd tap, say, his right temple 10 or 15 times and then tap right in the middle of his forehead 10 or 15 times and then tap his left temple kind of 10 or 15 times. And it really calmed him down. And I I was almost a little bit taken aback by the whole process. It was not something that I hadn't seen before. But as you described that there, what comes to mind for me there is that he was using a grounding technique. 
in terms of he was able to calibrate the feeling on the side of his face with the feeling of pushing his finger across the side of his head and, and completely calibrate the whole thing in terms of yeah feeling that experience within his own skin. So I wonder if that's, yeah, just maybe a, a little example of someone who, who has used that sort of technique. I think it's a very good example. And yes, that's integrating the sense of intention of moving and touch and experiencing that in a certain kind of way, maybe even what you see, what you feel, what you're intending with your movement all connects together. It's more integrated. Also, when you tap in certain places, like if you tap acupressure points, we've talked before about bilateral stimulation, for example, if you tap on your cheekbones about an inch under each eye alternately, that's like bilateral stimulation. And I think that leads you to be more aware of, in a sense, that boundary between yourself, like your skin, and the sensory nerves in your skin and the outer world. It helps you be aware of that boundary. And it is like an integrated internal experience if you intend to have that feeling and then you feel it. I think it's a very good example of a grounding technique. Well, what I wonder now is to do with the treatment and the management of depersonalization associated with panic attacks... You mentioned earlier on that it was one of 13 possible symptoms that can happen with panic attacks. And as we mentioned, we'll speak about more entrenched patterns of depersonalization next week. But when someone is experiencing depersonalization with panic attacks, are you better off treating it as if it was a panic attack? And I suppose not necessarily even differentiating the treatment for if there wasn't depersonalization with a panic attack? Or is it best to look at it as a more temporary version of, for example, dissociative disorder that I imagine would have a slightly more longer-term treatment? That's a really good question, and I think when it boils down to it, as a therapist, you look at how long-term or entrenched the pattern of depersonalization is, how much it's gone beyond, for example, a panic experience to become more generalised in people's lives. If it's become more generalised in people's lives, then you treat it a little bit more as a dissociative disorder, and we'll talk about that more, as you say, in our next episode on depersonalization disorder. But I think in the first instance, it'll be more common that people are experiencing depersonalization, especially with panic attacks. So then I think it's worth treating it as a panic symptom, but in addition, emphasising that grounding technique aspect of it, looking to stay attuned to your surroundings, let yourself experience yourself within your own skin, and notice afterwards by allowing yourself to be more integrated that way, more connected to your body in the outside world in a sense, by directing your attention that way, it'll actually, even if it's uncomfortable, lead you to feel a little bit more control because you'll be a little bit more connected with your emotions, even if they're uncomfortable, and you'll be a little bit more connected with your memory. You're less likely to have amnesia after that experience if you're using grounding techniques. So I think that's the kind of thing. It's basically dealing with it as another panic symptom, but plus emphasising the grounding techniques. And just notice that even if the experience is really uncomfortable... It's worth going through that and allowing yourself to feel it a bit rather than just try and numb yourself or block it out because then you'll have better connected memory, emotions and understanding and hopefully part of that understanding is appreciating that yes, you've got through yet another panic experience or you've got through the experience, nothing terrible has happened, 
you haven't lost your mind, it's not to do with psychosis, you're going to be okay, you're going to be fine. And just like with practice, we're dealing with other anxiety reactions, then you tend to bolster and strengthen your coping techniques, which is probably why it tends to lessen further after the age of about 30. So then, Dad, how do you differentiate between someone who may be experiencing panic attacks with depersonalisation symptoms and someone who does have a more entrenched depersonalisation disorder? So it's partly the frequency of the reactions and whether these reactions happen outside the occurrence of panic as well. For example, people might have depersonalisation experiences at different times of the day when there's no obvious extra distress that they're going through. They might not be having the panicky kind of feelings. They might be feeling depressed. They might be aware of having some trauma reactions or some other kind of difficulties related to anxiety, for example, but not as obviously panicky. For some people, it becomes more enduring, it becomes more persistent, and it would seem a couple of things are happening there. The person's getting more used to the habit of blocking out painful feelings by inhibiting or suppressing feelings. And also what can happen, like some other dissociative experiences, is people can be using certain kinds of hypnotic mechanisms or trance states to, in a sense, be outside their body or altering the way they feel their emotions. So it can be used as a kind of defensive way of buffering pain. And one way of buffering pain, a more extreme way, is to be convinced that you're not even within your own skin or your own body. You might be in the trees that you can see outside or you might actually be another person who can carry the pain for you so you don't have to feel that at all. Or you might have a way of switching off your memory so you have no memory for the pain. So you get these other more complex reactions that can become more frequent, more entrenched, more combined with the person's usual personality functioning. And then that tends to be more associated with some of the ongoing dissociative disorders we'll talk about more next time, particularly depersonalisation disorder. But that in turn relates to, for example, dissociative identity disorder. Well, it is something that I am really looking forward to getting into with you next time, Dad, because the Dissociative Symptoms article on our website is one that's been accessed, you know, tens of thousands of times by people all around the world. So clearly there is a need. There is a need for more of this information to get out there. And if there's anything that I sort of take from all of this, it's it's just how much we need to talk about this sort of stuff, I guess, and, and how much it is important to talk about experiences within the human condition, however weird they may seem. Because as you were saying, 25 years ago, there would have been people that completely dismissed these very legitimate experiences. We're not necessarily trying to condone them at all, but we're not delegitimizing them or invalidating them as part of the human condition. But at the end of the day, there is an explanation for them and there is a treatment for them to be able to manage them and make sure that they're not so uncomfortable for people so i think the more that we can talk about this stuff the more that we're likely to accept that there are a whole range of experiences that people can have they may seem very very weird but we shouldn't invalidate the people who do experience those things yes well for some years now we've had about 20 people a day accessing our website for that dealing with dissociative disorders handout showing how common that kind of difficulty is, even though it might not be talked about as much. And funnily enough, as responding to that more general article on dissociative disorders that some of the people have got in touch where it turns out that their depersonalisation was more in relation to panic attacks, our theme of today. 
But yes, this relates to a broader theme. It's not just what kind of difficulties that we have, like some anxiety reactions or even depressive symptoms or trauma reactions or depersonalisation. And these are the clinical terms that we use for these kind of reactions. But it's how we respond to them. It's what it means to us. And the biggest challenge often with depersonalisation is if people misinterpret that as there being something more wrong with their mind than there is, which is why we're highlighting that theme this time. Again, that notion of it being not dangerous. And so one of the main things that happens is when people no longer are so much panicking about the panic or they're no longer so worried about the depersonalisation or disturbed or distressed about the depersonalisation, then these reactions become part of our mind and body's way of responding to distress and become a signal to us. They're a signal that we're experiencing a bit more stress in some way. They can be a helpful signal. Oh, look, I'm having this sort of weird feeling come over me. I come a bit familiar with that now. Is there something that's stressing me at the moment? Is there something bothering me? Well, yes, I have been under the pump lately with different kind of demands. Yes, I am a bit bothered by what happened earlier today, that conflict I had with a friend. Yes, I am worried about what's going to happen tomorrow when I try this task. It can alert us that some things are bothering us and actually these reactions can then help us have a more planful and integrated response to the challenges that we face. I think most symptoms are our mind and body's way of alerting us that we're feeling some kind of stress or challenge. And if we can take the angst out of them and not make too many negative judgments about ourselves for having those reactions, then it can help us redirect our attention to look at how we might work around or address the source of our distress. Oh, thank you for chatting to me about all this today, Dad. It's been really interesting to pin down just exactly how they're related to panic attacks because I must admit I, I mainly knew depersonalization to do with dissociative disorder with some of the stuff that we've spoken about before, but it just really seems that it is something that is a bit under-recognised and it is a lot more prevalent than people realise. And I will just mention as well that for today's episode, uh, which you can access the episode page at www.psychspiels.com.au, we will have a number of resources that we'll put up for today's episode, including a number of clinical handouts. That, as you say, Dad, they've been some of our, our more popular content that's been accessed over the years. So we'll put up a handout that we have on panic attacks. There is also a video that you've done, Dad, which... Did a great job, I might say. I'll give you a little plug here about how to deal with panic attacks. And that's a little bit more whilst you're dealing with panic attacks. That video is a little bit more related to. So we'll put those up on the podcast page for today. And we'll also put the dissociative disorders handout and the dissociative symptoms handout. We'll put that up on the page too in preparation for next week's podcast too. Because yeah, very much looking forward to it, Dad. And we'll speak to you then. Good, and we'll probably have a specific handout on this topic as well. I'll at least get a draft up for that and we might revise it in time. And what would really help would be getting some feedback from people if they relate to what we've talked about in this podcast. This is one in particular. It would be really helpful to get people's feedback if you relate to what we're talking about. Certainly. And you can get in touch with us as well at podcast at chrismackey.com.au. So that email goes straight through to me and dad. So we'll be on the end to, to take any feedback you do have. So very much looking forward to hearing from you out there. So thanks so much again, dad. I'll look forward to the next one. Look forward to that, Rowan.